Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with me, as always, is the admin for the Mimarin Forum, Joseph Ren. Joe, I'm going into what amounts to unusual territory for me, subject-wise. Are you ready to do a lot of editing? I want to say how much I'm looking forward to this episode. Have you ever watched a film and said, I really enjoyed that, and then watched another film that you really enjoyed, then watched a television series that you really enjoyed, and then years go by, you have started to tell everyone about these films that are really fucking weird, and this television series that's really fucking weird. Then you look up and say, those were all directed by the same person? Turns out, I, my friend, am a pretty big Satoshi Kon fan. How are you tonight, all of you gruesome people? Welcome to the Fright Lab. I know it's been a few weeks, but we're back for more. And I'm always prepared to do the editing, Lucas, because sometimes it needs to happen. We're going to get it right. I have faith in your ability as a orator, as a narrator, and as a writer. That's my last tour joke of the evening. Got it. Works for me. Um, <laughs> all right. So before we get started, content warning around tonight's films. Uh, they feature some pretty explicit sexually violent imagery. We will not be discussing those incidents in any detail at all. But if you're not OK with that sort of thing, we get it. We understand. Just skip this episode. I'm not a big anime fan. I don't hate anime. Far from it, actually. I think it can be a really interesting way to tell a story, and it doesn't have all of the constraints of, of those movies that we have here in our meat space, you know? So that's a bonus. But like so many other forms of media, anime is mostly just not my thing. I don't like most action films or comedies, so, you know, maybe that's just not so surprising. But every so often, there is a particular set of films or TV shows or a creator that somehow transcends the boundaries there. Many people who are fans of anime, like Studio Ghibli and films directed by Miyazaki, you know the type. But in the horror world, the best known anime creator to cross over the media barrier is Satoshi Kon. On tonight's episode, I want to talk about the best known of Kon's work and the mechanics of those films. We're also going to touch on some of his less explicitly horror works and why horror fans should seek those out too. Khan's influence can be felt in some non-anime ways, in ways that we will mention later on. Satoshi Khan is kind of the David Lynch of anime. This isn't a new idea. It's been noted plenty of times by people both professionally as well as in just the anime fan base. There's a few reasons why that's a common comment, though, and I think that's a really brilliant way to start this conversation. We need to discuss a trend in art that frames both Lynch's works and the most popular of Kahn's works as well. That trend is surrealism. So let's fall down that rabbit hole, shall we? In not being a, a typical anime fan, I just don't know a a lot about it. I, I know remarkably little about it as a media and as a kind of uh, umbrella genre. I also know remarkably less about the philosophical underpinnings of surrealism. So I admit that I am a little overwhelmed in trying to explain all of these things somewhat at once. Suffice it to say that this has been a real learning experience. Writing this episode has broadened my horizons substantially. You're welcome. I think there has always been a subconscious desire to teach something as well as keeping up my own education. The Fright Lab might not have as many Bunsen burners, but it is dedicated to improving our lives like any laboratory. So where do we begin with this discussion of surrealism? When you hear someone describe things as surreal, they mean that it's weird or unexpected inside of a particular context. And while that's a not unfair use of the word, it's limited. It's actually missing some pretty specific points and implications. 
The Museum of Modern Art in New York, a.k.a. MoMA, has a predictably good definition. Quote, Surrealism was an artistic, intellectual, and literary movement led by the poet André Breton from 1924 through World War II. The Surrealists sought to overthrow the oppressive rulers of modern society by demolishing its backbone of rational thought. To do so, they attempted to tap into the, quote, superior reality of the subconscious mind, unquote. So that's a good place to begin. The Park West Gallery offers this point about it, which kind of helps to flesh out the above listed idea. A fundamental aspect of the surrealist movement is a mode of expression called automism, which involves the act of automatic or uncensored recording of the thoughts and images that emerge into an artist's mind. With a focus on tapping into involuntary thought processes and interpreting dreams, surrealist artwork is not limited to a specific artistic style or technique. Here again, we fall into a point that I have made so many times before on this show, and that is the power phantasmagoria. For those who are just now tuning in, that's a series of images that are unusual or dreamlike. Typically, we say that a film has a phantasmagoric element when it uses explicitly weird imagery or an unusual visual style to make a point. And before the joke is cracked, yep, the movie Phantasm is very phantasmagoric. It's weird, dreamlike, horrific, and it partly works because it's just fucking strange. With that tangent out of the way, surrealism, as our definition tends to express, is more than just weird. It's meant to call upon the subconscious, that proposed part of our mind that isn't operating on rational terms. The mind beneath our mind is where dreams and nightmares occur and that barely perceptible details of our living lives are sorted out. Surrealism is an art movement not of the mind, André Breton uh, said in his 1924 Manifesto of Surrealism. He puts it fantastically. It is not the fear of madness which will oblige us to leave the flag of the imagination furled. Surrealism seems to be ultimately looking to harness the creative power of the subconscious mind and seems to be the ultimate source of our creativity, I think. I admit, it's heady stuff and it confuses even me, and I'm probably not the smartest person in the room, so make of that what you will. There's a likelihood that the artists and art historians in our audience are screaming at their phone or their computer right now, but I don't want to dwell too long on this art movement or my mistakes about it. Suffice it to say that surrealism in film is aspiring to be dreamlike and unusual, not dealing directly with the conscious world or rational experiences. I think that animated films are a great choice for this sort of approach. If you can get away from the constraints of our material world by not needing it as a canvas, you can just get away with a lot more on screen. And if you're wanting to learn more about this, I have, of course, included links to what we have just talked about in the last few minutes in the show notes. There's some fun and interesting concepts there for you to explore. Go check those out. Before we move forward, yeah. where do you draw the line between surreal and psychedelic? You mentioned phantasmagoric, but where does psychedelic fall in there? Okay, so we have to think about what psychedelic means as a word. Psychedelic should be referring to as the expansion of consciousness. So when we're talking about that, there's a couple of ways you can look at it. I think there's kind of the way uh, psychedelic gets used in like popular culture. A movie like uh, Altered States is a really good example of what we talk about being psychedelic. It's colorful, it's weird, it's all over the place. But is it consciousness expanding? Um, I beg to, to disagree, in part because the original author of the book, Altered States, that inspired the movie, Altered States, uh, Patty Chayefsky, was kind of making fun of psychedelia and the psychedelic movements in that book to begin with. So, eh, I don't know, that's me admittedly kind of like uh, splitting hairs. But I think that a psychedelic movie is an idea that not only pushes the boundaries of creativity, but tries to push the boundaries of your thinking, of the way your mind works. If I'm going to say I think a movie is psychedelic, I'm going to pick something like 
the Den of Celestial Birds by El- uh, by Elias Mirhaj. He's the guy who directed Shadow of the Vampire. He also directed uh, this absolutely uh, nightmarish piece of film called Begotten and then uh, the Den of Celestial Birds. They're designed to kind of push your brain a little bit. And that, I don't know, I think maybe psychedelic films are more into the art film category than we're discussing here. But th- that's a really interesting distinction. Where would you put that? I think of it from the tonal perspective of the film. If it's dark imagery or it's horrifying, something like Lynch, that's surreal to me. Most of the time, nothing is definite in the sand, but then something like Pink Floyd's The Wall or some of the animated films inspired by 70s imagery and 60s flower child imagery, those tend to be more psychedelic. Those are happier in tone. And that's a false precedence because the implication with psychedelic is it's drug-induced, whereas surreal is consciousness and phantasmagoric is dreamlike. None of this is absolute. I, I want to set a definition. Maybe we need to make this available at thefrightlabpodcast.com. Our triangle of the unnatural imagery. That is... um. You know, uh, dear audience, this is a totally off-the-cuff conversation, but the idea of the triangle of the unnatural, I really like this idea way more than I should. We'll get back to this at some point. Joe, <laughs> mark this down, the triangle of the unnatural. I, I'm really, mm, that uh, that has some, some something to it. I like that. Okay, Joe, so I'm going to need your help with this. When do you recall seeing an anime, either a feature-length film or a series for the first time? I could answer this question with hindsight and tell you that there were many a cartoon from the 80s that I saw as a child. Turns out those were animes that had English dubs and they were presented to American children, be it just for kids entertainment VHS tapes or on whatever Saturday morning cartoon you had. But I wasn't aware of those things being anime at their core. I think the first anime I sought out was Akira. And that came from the first American distribution of that film on VHS, where they were pushing these really extreme anime films late night. You could call the 800 number and spend your $25.99 or $24.95 if we're giving the official price and get those tapes in the mail And that might have been the first time anyone saw a film like that. That was the first anime I sought out and said, I want to see what this thing called Japanese anime is. I, I, if my memory serves me correctly, I think the first proper anime I saw, I was maybe 13. Uh, It was probably either Akira or Ninja Scroll. Uh, Not sure there. Definitely not the unedited cut of that film. Uh, I I don't know if it was the edited film or not. I can tell you that there was a lot of things I saw as a like 12 or 13 year old that I almost certainly should not have seen as a 12 or 13 year old. Uh, But you might imagine it left an impression on me. And yeah, I know that shows like Robotech were created and imported to America by the Japanese but they weren't really part of that first huge wave of anime that hit the U.S. Uh, kind of, you know, when you and I were teenagers. And this was well before properties like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh uh, had even happened. So there was this mystique to the whole thing, you know? It doesn't hurt that those first feature-length movies are very adult in subject matter. Absolutely. Think, think about it like the early 2000s when movies like Ichi the Killer first started being imported to America or the original Old Boy, how hard those movies hit because no American director, no American film studio uh, in the mainstream anyway, was doing anything that left field and that insane. So that's also an incredibly long way of saying that I am going to not give you some sort of history of anime. I'm not the guy to do it. Sorry. So if you have a show discussing anime history or you know someone who does, 
email us at the fright lab podcast at gmail.com so we can chat about that subject i'm genuinely curious about that and if there is some creator out there who wants to like meet us midway and talk about it reach out we really want to talk to you about it um so instead we're going to kind of drop directly into the action and talk about the films of satoshi khan uh specifically we're going to start with perfect blue and paprika mima was a pop star this is mima's last performance with cham who desired to become an actress i really hope that i can entertain you just the same as an actress but sometimes aspirations can be deadly i'm always watching mima's room in the world of make-believe this is when mima proves herself the price of fame don't worry, Mima, it'll be all right. May not be worth the cost of identity. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Innocence is lost. Dreams become nightmares. And privacy no longer exists. Where everything you do can be seen by everyone. Perfect Blue follows the story of Mima Kirigori commonly called by her nickname throughout the movie, Mimarin. She is a member of a popular group of idol singers, but has decided to leave the pop music business and pursue a career as an actress. Anyone who has followed pop culture knows that skill in one form of entertainment doesn't necessarily mean skill in any other. As it turns out, Mimarin is not necessarily a David Hasselhoff type and actually starts to find her way with the help of a good agent and a lot of tenacity. But like so many pop icons before her, Mimarin is not getting universal acclaim in her new role as an actress. Mima discovers, through the magic of 1990s internet culture, a website detailing her every move and her every thought. But it isn't Mima's website. She didn't accidentally set up an angel fire page while she was asleep one night. No, someone's stalking her. Is it a deranged fan? An enemy from the music world? Or has Mimarin been dealing with some unidentified mental disorder? Is she aware of what she's doing? This plot would be interesting enough without having Satoshi Khan's distinct thing happening here. <laughs> Instead of opting for a linear timeline and depiction, we slip in and out of Mimarin's tortured private life and her increasingly strange public behavior. It's not until the climax of the film that you really learn what's happening to her, since the film is constantly slipping in and out of different perceptions. For me, it immediately evokes David Lynch's Inland Empire, which is... Well, at nearly three hours in length, it's a challenging film, even for diehard Lynch heads like me. It has that Lynchian feeling of never really letting you know what's real and what's fantasy. It feels, at times, like some sort of upsetting dream. And as disjointed as it sounds, Perfect Blue is generally really popular. I won't belabor this point, but it gets an 8 out of 10 rating on IMDb, which is no small feat. And as a funny aside, Lynch's Inland Empire gets under a 7 out of 10 on IMDb. I think that might have something to do with Inland Empire being mostly just upsetting and disjointed, while Perfect Blue has a mostly coherent ending along with being upsetting and disjointed. It's also one of the films that really got pushed by Encore and Stars and the Action Channel back in the day where every night, or at least later in the week, there was something anime late at night, 9.30 onward. And if it was a film, it was amazing. And I know we didn't get into this earlier, but that's where the majority of my anime started was with those movie channels. And Perfect Blue was absolutely one of those films that I saw and I think because it was distributed on premium cable, that's one of the reasons why it's so popular. It's one of the weirdest films a lot of people have seen, and it has a very good ahead of its time theme that Satoshi Khan does not let go of. He very much 
gives his opinion with his stories and a lot of it has come by the way unfortunately you know the the interesting thing there uh that no one really talks about uh perfect blue and a lot of satoshi khan stuff like i hear you know film critics and anime critics and weirdos like me say it but i just don't see it uh in the mainstream nearly enough for my liking anyway um satoshi khan's a good filmmaker like just flat out good filmmaker i think had he chosen something outside of the animated world he would be regarded as one of the best of of his generation honestly and i think a movie like perfect blue it doesn't hurt the fact that for when it came out which is early 90s if memory serves me correctly early mid 90s it looks great the 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 animation and is not as dated as you might imagine sure like the early 90s internet stuff is it is what it is i find it charmingly dated but it's very much a product of its era and it very much looks good for that time period which then brings us to paprika (laughs) oh man where do you where do you even begin talking about paprika In the very near future, a group of brilliant scientists have created a machine that can control our dreams. But now, the device is missing. To solve the mystery and save humanity, She must stop the dream terrorists from altering our minds. Okay, so um, there's a company that is designing a machine and it allows you to mess with people's dreams. And it seems like there's someone using this machine to commit acts of increasingly brutal and just bizarre violence. The world of dreams has also become this like weird ongoing parade halfway between like traditional Japanese Matsuri and the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade in candy colored hell. Finally, there is the titular paprika, a sort of dream art terrorist who continues to engage with our protagonists throughout the run line of the film. This movie is nearly insane. I attempt to watch it one night not that long ago, like half awake, and it was just a disaster. So I tried watching it again, much more awake this time, uh, had a cup of coffee with me, and it made more sense, but it wasn't any more direct. I realize that that does not sound like a glowing endorsement of a movie. Further, it doesn't sound like much of a review of a movie like Lynch. It's exhausting and kind of fruitless to try and explain movies like this in a direct way. At the core, Paprika is a whodunit kind of movie, an ongoing conflict in the dream world of increasing danger. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, this sounds kind of like Christopher Nolan's Inception, doesn't it? I would argue that it's impossible to argue that Inception wasn't influenced by paprika if it wasn't then it's an absolute shock since there are scenes in inception that appear to me to basically pull inspiration if not direct shots from paprika i've included in the show notes an article from film school rejects about this point and you should go check it out it's a it's a cool article unless of course Someone from Satoshi Khan's universe used a dream technology thing to invade Christopher Nolan's dreams, right? And then that way, uh, oh God, what am I talking about? Do you see what Satoshi Khan's movies do to you? You don't see the fire department, right? Just checking. South Park Uh, reference. I I gotta go. Anyway. All manic jokes aside, Paprika and Perfect Blue are the most concentrated and best received of Khan's darker works. The nonlinear storytelling, imaginative visual style, dreamlike atmosphere, uh, along with the underlying like paranoia and fear 
It's a very specific vibe. And that vibe is a powerful, nearly unique thing in the world of horror, I think. As I stated earlier, I don't know that much about anime. Maybe there is a whole hidden world of horror anime that I am just not aware of. I did try to watch a series called Boogie Pop Phantom years ago, but I genuinely didn't understand any of it at the time. It's spooky as hell, but apparently it's a part of like a bigger set of anime shows that I've never seen or much less even heard of, but seems like you can sort of get away with a lot in an anime series, such as Satoshi Khan's Paranoia Agent. I have to do this. Do it. I've been waiting for this for a very long time, my friend. There's something so wrong about this theme in context with the rest of the show, but it is a damn good song, actually. There are so many bits that he puts in the title sequence and the ending sequence. You don't realize until you get through this whole series that it's one of those shove everything in front of you, but don't explain any of it. And you watch the show to find the references done most recently by Rick and Morty. Paranoia agent. I'm terrified. Every time I see it, everybody is smiling in a very unnatural way. It's dreamlike. It's intentionally supposed to set you on edge. But the music is so nice. (laughs) (laughs) And in some regards, uh, Paranoia Agent is just more perfect blue and paprika, right? There is something to be said for the films that came first. Much like Lynch with Twin Peaks, is this what happens when you give Satoshi Khan a television contract and a budget and say, tell us your sequential story and tie it all back together because I don't think this series works as a film. So, mm, unless you want to do a 10-hour film. (laughs) I think that Paranoia Agent works more because it is a long-form story, right? It's split across this massive cast of characters and the whole Satoshi Khan thing, quote unquote, is fully on display. Ambient dread, nonlinear stories, you get the idea. Shocking violence, unexplained events at every turn. It's a Satoshi Khan thing. Uh, as we've been talking, uh, I, I first learned about Paranoia Agent from our intrepid co-host, Joe. You're welcome. And I need your substantial gifts, sir, to help me explain more of the overall experience of Paranoia Agent. Like you said earlier, this very interesting point that everyone is smiling in this wholly unnatural way, the entire film. There are moments in the film, or I'm sorry, in the series rather, where you would think like, oh, okay, we're about to get a fairly normal, straightforward story about who the up until now uh, villain of this series has been, who's only been on screen a grand total of about nine minutes. And also... Oh, here's this neat story about this woman who's apparently doing sex work and it's weirdly touching. And oh, wait, nope, nope, nope. All unwholesome and terrifying again. Got it. Joe, let me just ask you a single question. What the fuck is going on in Paranoia Agent? (laughs) I was lucky the first time I saw this series. I don't always catch something from the beginning. But I was extremely lucky. I don't know if I was looking for Cowboy Bebop to be on that night or if something else was supposed to be on at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever time I saw this. But Paranoia Agent was there. And I caught it from the beginning. That Adult Swim logo kicked in. I heard that theme music and said, what is this? What is going on is a near masterful if not perfect attempt at telling a perfect blue-like story, but adding as many character impacts and stories and backstories to it because he's trying to say what is going on is somebody in a position of celebrity had to tell a lie and How that lie impacts not just them, but everybody around them is felt by this film. 
Well, it's kind of a butterfly effect thing, isn't it? You know, in the in the chaos theory idea, uh, the butterfly effect, a butterfly flaps its wings in South America, scaring a herd of animals, which causes microscopic shifts in wind patterns. And that wind pattern causes it to rain instead of being sunny in New York. It's very much one person does one thing. It's a drop in the bucket. It shouldn't be that big of a deal. But that one drop in the bucket causes this massive chain event of then this happens, then this happens. I mean, dear audience, look at your life. At some point, there was this microscopic shift somewhere or maybe huge shift. Sometimes we all don't get lucky and just get a a subtle life. Uh, But there was a shift somewhere. And then nine years later, you're looking back going, oh, that's where all this started. It it sounds to me, I think paranoia agents, a really great way of talking about that butterfly effect. And it's encouraging the watcher not just to it's not this penultimate thing about this is how you should live your life it's trying to tell you that whatever is going on right now there is a bigger picture and whatever you need to do whatever help you need to ask for you need to ask for it because you don't realize how what's going on with you personally is impacting everyone around you not just the people that you know, but the people nearby, the people one step further, even globally. It might be Satoshi Khan trying to say, we all just need to get along. And I like that you brought up the butterfly effect. I didn't think of using that term, but again, everything that is in this series is given to you at the very beginning, almost like Quentin Tarantino, but Not the jumping back and forth to tell you different pieces of the story, but a very interesting character is seen many times throughout the series, almost the muse of the series. And I've never taken the time to translate, but there's an old man with some sidewalk chalk. It's one of the first things you see, and he is doing some type of global physics equation. He may have, in fact, solved the universe, which I think is an implication later in the series, um, if you remember the magic act. Um, but it it really did illustrate how there is a solution to this puzzle, though the puzzle is complex. Fast forward, go through all the steps you have. How does this lie that we talked about impact the police, the people around her, the gossip that comes from people telling stories? Uh, You have implications of people telling stories because they want to fit in with the group, not necessarily because they have something to contribute. There is multiple personalities touched on in this, and these are themes that he has touched on before, but he hasn't done it the way he does it in this film. Even some of those really disturbing things you told the audience we weren't going to talk about, oh, they're in here. And I I encourage you to just grab hold of the reins and see it through to the end because the 12, 13 episodes, I believe it's 12 that you're going to get, or 16, I have to really need to look at my series. It all runs together in my head and that's how much I enjoy it. You really need to just grab a hold and, and take the ride. You couldn't do this as a film unless you wanted to do a serial type film. They might be able to pull this off in live action today, but man, you'd have to stick to some of these themes. And it's not so it's not so hidden that by the time you see the ending, you can't rewatch it. Because I rewatch it at least once a year. I love this series. Well, at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about one more film. And it, it, it's bookending this next to Paranoia Agent is kind of a weird one. I also said that the movie I wanted to discuss, uh, it's a film from Khan's filmography that isn't exactly horror or or expressly horrific. And that film is Millennium Actress. It's from 2001. Zero. Hey, 
一番大切なものをあげるカニさ教えてくださいあの人は今どこにいつか約束した場所で I can't believe that you're bookending this episode with the earliest film in his timeline. Well, hear me out. The plot of Millennium Actress is the most simple of the works I have discussed tonight. A famous film studio's original sets and backlot are being torn down. As a result, a film historian and his videographer are going to interview a famous actress. Who left the industry and became something of a recluse. She had been one of the studio's biggest stars and was an icon of Japanese film.、Uh, so, this is the interview of a lifetime, right? What our interviewer is not prepared for is the wild ride they are about to experience, one that will change his life and reveal just oh so many secrets. So, that doesn't sound all that scary, right? And it isn't. You know, horrifying,、uh, the way Perfect Blue is horrifying. But I have to say that Millennium Actress is one of the most moving films I have seen in years. Sure, it is a Satoshi Kon joint. So there's nonlinear storytelling and elements of shifting identities that happen throughout. Millennium Actress also uses some classic horror movie tropes throughout the movie, and that's why I wanted to represent it here. You see parts of Japanese history also represented throughout the movie, and they're done by way of in movie movies. Like they're, they're the plots of films that the Millennium Actress herself was in. You see what I mean? That is Satoshi Kon's whole thing. He is constantly fucking with the way you have to talk about things. Anyway, you see like samurai era costume dramas with scary Japanese folklore twists in them. You also see the lingering effects of World War II in the immediate post war period、uh, throughout a number of sections of the movie. And、uh, for a horror buff like me, who is also a history buff, that's something I find really gut churning. And the story really shows our titular actress. Living as a young woman throughout that part of the war. Again, moving stuff. Okay, so Millennium Actress has horror elements and concepts baked in, but more importantly, it shows that Khan was just the spooky, weird anime guy. Millennium Actress is beautiful and heartfelt, along with being twisty and dreamlike. The ambiance of the movie doesn't allow you to be comfortable at any point. Which makes the heartfelt emotional sequences even more like hard hitting and gut churning. There's a theme of love lost and love unrequited that runs throughout the entire movie. It's something you don't see ever really discussed in horror very much. And honestly, I, I kind of think we're worse off for that.、Um, you know, I think love is a hard thing to talk about amidst the blood and guts. But I kind of wish there were more of that in a way.、Um, Joe, are you a fan of Millennium Actress? Absolutely. Not the first film I saw from Satoshi Kon. That was Perfect Blue. I've spent the least amount of time with Paprika because, as you said, it's a mind fuck. <laughs> and you really have to be open to the story and the tone of that film because it's challenging you. Most of his films, if not all of them, are challenging you, the viewer, to think about how you live your day to day life and how you handle yourself in relationships and conversation. And I think Millennium Actress is very unique. It's a love story about life seen through the eyes of a diehard fan. You have an opportunity to sit down with this woman who you believe to be number one in all things television and film, but you have a job to do. So you're not just listening to her tell her stories, you're living them because you've seen her depict these characters in these situations. And it's a visual for the audience to sit and listen. And pay attention, but it's also subtly reminding you not to discard people who have been here longer than you because 
Some of those conversations are the most important ones you can have. Because whether you like it or not, they have actually been here longer than you. And they probably know a thing or two if they made it this long. You know, uh, you and I are both kind of in this very interesting place, uh, both age-wise, because you and I are kind of in the same age cohort, but also just, I think, personality-wise, that we are in long-term relationships with people who are not just older than us, but older than us by fair distance. And... Generations all- lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. And... um This is apropos of nothing, but it's just a thought that I have along the lines of what you're talking about. So uh, in conversation with some of my family members the other night, um, we started talking about holiday stuff. Um, We're recording this episode the week before Christmas of 2023. We're hoping to have this episode out uh, before the end of year. So we're talking holiday stuff and the subject of Christmas cookies come up and we started talking about Christmas cookies and the weird recipes from back in the day. And what's your number one cookie, by the way? Oh, fuck, Joe. Don't put me on that spot, please. (laughs) At Christmas time. At Christmas time. I'm a simple guy. Give me my sugar cookies with a little bit of the colored sugar on top in the patterns. I don't know that that's my favorite, but I've got to tell you something. A good, well-made sugar cookie, like really like it's just soft enough, but has a little bit of bite and has the colored sprinkle on top that gives it that extra, that extra texture. And it's not sweet for the sake of being a sugar cookie. Yeah. It's just a good solid base upon which to build other flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. No, uh, sugar cookies. I, are they my favorite man? I don't know. I don't, I don't make me decide. That's like, that's like picking between (laughs) your two great loves, man. Don't put me in that position, but no, good sugar cookie. Well, (laughs) before we, before this becomes the cookie cast, um, no, you and I, you know, we, we're in that relationship with people older than ourselves. So learning old family recipes from some of my family members has actually been really interesting and getting copies of those those recipes. Many of them are recipes from people I never met who were dead long before I was born or lived, you know, right up at that point where I was first born and have no memories of them, you know? So it, it's actually, you know, your comment about following someone who was here before you or following someone who has this long history and not just learning their history, but if only for a moment living their history and learning again, not that just their history, but the link in the chain backwards in their history. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a moving thing for a guy like me. And yeah, I don't know. Where were we? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So surrealism seems like a strange palette for modern cinema, right? Uh, in an era of like Disney, Marvel, Star Wars dominance, I find surrealism personally actually very refreshing. A, a film like Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse has these big elements of surrealism and phantasmagoria running throughout the entire time of the film. Uh, I think it adds this extra edge to an already scary story of isolation and identity. And if nothing else, I think it helps break up the monotony of so much of you know popular, readily available cinema. Surrealism might be well-known as an art movement, but it's not easy to access in that regard either. So it's helpful. There's a need in the world for the works of Satoshi Kon, David Lynch, and Robert Eggers. Surrealists wield a scalpel that cuts through so much of the noise of modern art. Satoshi Kon sadly passed away in 2010 after a short but intense bout of cancer. I genuinely think that we lost a really vital voice in the world of cinema when that happened. Like so many other artists who leave the world just entirely too soon, I genuinely wonder what he might have accomplished had he lived to this day. He was a pretty young guy. It would not surprise me if, in the next like 20 years, we go on to see Satoshi Kon on that same list as like Akira Kurosawa or Takashi Miike, you know, for whatever that's worth. I know that I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about movies that no one has seen. Perfect Blue might be the best known of Satoshi Kon's films, but I doubt your parents have seen it, you know? At the top of the episode, I commented how directors like Miyazaki have cracked into the cultural mainstream. I've also brought up shows like Pokemon, which is undoubtedly a pop cultural giant. 
So long as we have access to media from across the globe, I think we'll continue to see really brilliant things surface more and more, and they'll be happening more and more in American pop culture. But what about horror, right? Well, about six or eight months ago, I saw Baskin, a genuinely nightmarish <laughs> horror film. I referenced it in conversation to someone who is decidedly not a horror fan, and they immediately pointed out two things. One, it's just not surprising they hadn't heard about it because I'm the guy talking about it. Two, a Turkish horror movie in America? Weird. Surprise. Surprise. Um, I don't know that I'm ever going to do an episode about Baskin, and I don't know that I can recommend that you go watch Baskin. I think it's streaming on Shudder at this point. If you're into that kind of thing, it's a rewarding film. It is, shall we say, not for everybody. But, you know, we horror nuts, we know better. We know that good horror comes from all over. I genuinely look forward to seeing what happens next uh, as the next like big horror anime film. I also am looking forward to finding out what you think. Is Perfect Blue the best piece of Satoshi Kon's output? And what are some other horror anime films I should check out? And... Where will the next big horror boom come from? I've been watching a lot of stuff from Southeast Asia recently. Um, Joko Anwar, you're a bad, bad man. <laughs> so let us know. Talk to us. Reach out to us at the Fright Lab Podcast at gmail.com or give us a follow on the Letterboxed app at Fright Lab Pod. So we're thinking about jumping ship. Uh, Twitter, as we know, is mostly dead, so we're not really dealing with that anymore. We are, however on discord joe can you tell our fans where they can find us on discord as always there will be a link in the show notes that's discord.frightlabpodcast.com also we've started an instagram feed for the show fright underscore lab underscore pod again let us know where what we should be talking about or things you want to hear about or tell us what we're doing right tell us what we're doing wrong we want to talk to you guys Joe, would you kindly let our audience know where they might find your other podcasting endeavors? As always, if you're a fan of all things heavy metal, hard rock, hardcore, doom and gloom, you need to be listening to all of the podcasts we are creating at DiscussMetal.com. We talk about heavy metal topics. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands. I was hanging out with John and AJ from the Nerf Herder Council a couple weeks ago. We talked about Violent Night. It was very fun and very absurd. Um, I didn't know how much I could enjoy a film about Bad Santa doing a Die Hard to steal a quote from Rick and Morty. <laughs> you missed out, my friend. I'm going to get you to watch that movie eventually. I want to hear from all of you. Join the Discord server. That's where the conversation is happening, and that's where we want to keep this going. You heard Lucas say at the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you what I need right now. Take out your phone. Scroll to the left, the right, the up, the down. Find the place where you get to leave the five-star review or the thumbs up and let us know how we're doing with this podcast. We have been doing this for a little over a year now, and there's so many good episodes, so many obscure horror films. One thing we're going to be doing more in 2024, more films you've heard of. Unless you are an absurdly in-the-weeds dark horror fan, and you know all of these absurdly dark horror films that most people have not heard. But that's what I'm hearing. I'm 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 hearing not just the uh, the absurd and the obscene, but can you guys talk about Alien? Like that's a scary movie, right? I, I think we're gonna do a little more of that. Not not only that, Lucas. Calm down. Okay. Okay. <laughs> he, he sees me scowling from across the studio, so that's what the mirror's for. So, um, just something I want to say. Just 2023 has been one of the weirdest fucking years of my life. But it's also been a great year. And one of the real highlights of this year has been this podcast and knowing that we get new listeners every week and that people are checking us out. You know, indie media, it's a slow uphill climb. It takes a lot of work, but we love indie media. We love indie artists. If you are doing something different, if you're doing horror music or a horror themed podcast, or you've got your own indie horror joint that you're getting ready to unleash upon the world, we want 
We want to know. We, we've got to see it and we want to talk to you about it. You want to get there fast, go alone. But you want to get there right, go with the team. We're building that team. And as always, The Fright Lab is written and conceptualized by me, Lucas Yoakum. Mr. Joseph Wren is our co-host and producer, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you download your podcasts, we are there. Let your family and friends, coworkers, worst enemy, your doctor, they need to know about the show. We appreciate each and every single one of you, and we will talk to you again very soon. Are you indeed a pop idol, Lucas? No comment. <laughs> I think I mentioned it on a previous episode. That scene at the ending of Perfect Blue is one of the successes that that film never gives you the perspective outside of what she's seeing. What, where she gets in the car and leaves and goes, wow, it's a perfect day. You mean that that scene? I mean the chase at the very end. Uh, you know what? I Where you see how... And how you are spoiling whole chunk. <laughs> We're going to bleep all of that out. Uh, all, uh, you know, I come from what you might describe as the eraser head baby school of films. And that is, I don't need to know. Just make it fucking awful. One of these days, we're going to talk about Eraserhead on this podcast. Oh, dude, you know I, that, right? I I almost started writing an Eraserhead script the other day, and I stopped myself because I realized that it's such a fucking can of worms <laughs> that I'm just not ready to deal with yet. Save that for our Lynch miniseries. Yeah, exactly. But you heard Lucas say it. The Fright Lab podcast. Ah, shit. <laughs> I, I derailed myself. It's it's good, dude. That's why. <laughs> this is why we're not. This is why we're not doing Violent Night, my man. I got you. <laughs> Paprika is a who done it kind of move me. Move me. <laughs> let me uh, let me take that again. <laughs> <laughs>